said nothing to anyone, for they were very afraid. Now, you know what? If that's true, that changes everything. If that's true, that changes absolutely everything. So I want us to look at the Gospels and for us to wrestle with this being true and why we can know and believe and confess that this is really the truth. And I want us to look at, and where's how I want to kind of phrase this, is this way. And that is, let me make sure that I can, is that, yeah, there we go. Can we get that? All right. You can go ahead and hit go ahead. I'll just say next slide when you need it. We can just keep going that way. No need to, to be relying on, on that. You got that. Here's the phrase I want us to use. I want you to learn to boil your own egg. To boil your own egg. That's what I want us to learn to do. Now, here's what I mean by that, by boiling your own egg. What I mean by that is simply this. Let me tell you a story about from my background. When I was raised, I was a teenager and early on in middle school, I was in a church that had three enemies in that particular church. There were three enemies in that church. And here were the three enemies. They were rock music, the Revised Standard Version, and the Russians, okay? That's what this church preached against, was those three things. Revised Standard Version, rock music, and the Russians. I knew if I didn't know anything else that I shouldn't use the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, I shouldn't listen to rock music, and the Russians were our enemies, okay? That was the three values, I think, that I remember and pulled away from this particular congregation. But here's what the guy was told in the midst of this. One of the things I was told in the midst of this, they said, if you take an egg and you put it in front of rock music for very long, that it will hard boil the egg. That's what they told me, okay? And so I, there came a time that I wanted to test what I had been told. And so in this midst of wanting to test what I'd been told, I didn't know any Russians, so I couldn't test that part of it. And I didn't own a revised standard version of the Bible, so I was left with one thing, with rock music, okay? So I took an egg, and I put it in front of a speaker, and I turned up that dial on the radio, okay? Down from those lower regions where the Christian stations hung out at that time, you know, way down there in the 88s and everything. And I went up past the upper 89s and into the 90s, past the, the NPR stations. Now, I'd been told they were from the devil too, but they weren't very interesting, so I didn't listen to them. So I just kept kind of going on up from that point, and I got to rock music up there. And once I got to that point... Then I put that egg right there and I left it there for about a week. And you know what? A lot of things may have been bad at that time, but that it never did switch. It never did boil. It never did boil. Now, you know what I want us to what That was really a major event for my life. It really was. Because I'd been told something and I had believed it and I had tested it and I had found out it wasn't true. That's what had happened. Now... What I want you to do is, with regards to what you have been told and what you believe and what you hear, I want to equip you so that you can, in yourself, so that you have the equipping to be able to test it for yourself. I don't want you to believe something just because you're told you ought to believe it. I don't want you to believe something either from the, from, whether from the church or from outside the church. I want us to test it by the word of God. And I want us to be able to say, I know and I believe that the gospels are true. And here's why and here's how I know it and I believe it. I want you to learn to try to boil your own egg. That is to say, I want you to do what I did in that and test what you've been told for yourself. Now, in the midst of this, I think one of the important things is this not against flesh and blood principle. Here's what I mean by that. 
Do you know what? Even if somebody totally disagrees with you and somebody comes up to you and says, Jesus never was raised from the dead, sometimes it's easy for us to get in the attitude of we want to attack that person, isn't it? We, all, we want to attack that person. But you know something Paul tells us? He says, your battle is not against flesh and blood. They're not the enemy. The enemy is, is, is Satan. He is our enemy. The person who disagrees with us is not our enemy. And so what I want us to be able to do is not to attack people in what we're doing, but rather we attack the real falsehoods around us. That's what I want us to be able to do and consider in this. So that's kind of giving you an overview of where I want us to head. And I want us to ask from the Gospels, what can we know about the real Jesus? Because we see we live in a world in which many people think that you can't know much of anything about the real Jesus. That it's kind of, a, kind of up in the air. How many of you have been watching TV or something like that and some crazy theory about Jesus comes along that contradicts everything else and another one and another one? You've heard those too, haven't you? We hear these ideas about Jesus, these falsehoods about Jesus all the time to the point that sometimes we wonder, what can I know about the real Jesus? I want to know about the real Jesus and what can I know. And here's what I want us to look at tonight. I want us to, and I want to demonstrate to you that there are some things you can know about the real Jesus. Here's what it is. Testimony about Jesus. It was formed early after his death. Some people say that this story about Jesus didn't come along till a generation, two generations after his death. There's people that claim that, that say, you can't rely on that. You can't rely on that because it comes much, much later after the time of Jesus. I want to show you how we can know that the testimony about Jesus emerged early and right after the time in which he died and was raised from the dead. I want to show you that it was connected to eyewitnesses. It wasn't people a long time afterwards or distant from it that were making up the story. The people who started the story of Jesus that we have in the Gospels in our Bible, those people were eyewitnesses of the events. They really saw it happen. They really saw it. And not only that, I want to show you that it was reported in independent accounts. That is to say that there's people that were separated from one another that told the same story and they had certain details that were close enough to one another that it makes you realize they are not making this up. Let's jump into this. Let's kind of jump in and understand some of this. Now, before we do, though, I want to give us kind of a big, broad overview of history right here. When, I, so when I'm talking about years or things like that, that you know about where we are, okay? So, so what we're looking at is that it was around the year 30 that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Around the year 30 in that. About three years later, Paul was converted. Um, so you got to think about 16 years later is the, is the letter to the Galatians. Then you got Corinthians and Romans, Mark's Gospel, Luke's and Matthew's Gospels. And then all the way much, much later, notice, is these Gospels like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, that some people say tell us about Jesus, but they came a lot later. And so it's important for us to see that these came a lot later. Now, I want to tell you one little sidelight. Anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? Good old Alexander the Great. We all heard of Alexander the Great. I want to tell you something about Alexander the Great right here. Did you know that every source about Alexander the Great that might have come from an eyewitness is gone? They're gone. Every one of them. Every one of those sources is gone. 
Now, this is a man who conquered the Persian Empire, died in Babylon in 323 B.C., and every source that might have been from an eyewitness is gone. In fact, when it comes to him, five sources, five, are all that remains that tells about him. Let me tell you about those sources. One of them was written by a guy named Justinus, and it was written 500 years after Alexander the Great. There's another one, a couple that are written, Arian and Xenophon, and it was 400 years after the date. Quintius Curtius, 400 years after. The closest document about Alexander the Great was written 300 years after Alexander the Great. Now, I want you to see that because what you're going to see is that testimony about Jesus emerges a matter probably of months in a very solid form after Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And yet everybody believes in Alexander the Great. Have you ever heard people running around that are atheists with regard to Alexander the Great? Okay, they're, they're, they're anti-Alexander the Great people. They say, you know what, you just can't believe in Alexander the Great. But you know, everybody believes in him. <laughs> everybody believes in him. The closest that anyone has anything that's written about Alexander the Great is 300 years after Alexander the Great lived. Jesus is a matter in oral tradition, we'll talk about that later, of months and just a few years, relatively speaking, in terms of written documentation about Jesus. But you know what the difference is? It challenges our lives if Jesus was really true. You see, Alexander the Great, if Alexander the Great never lived or died, it doesn't matter to my life, so I'll just believe in him. Why not? But if Jesus lived and died and lived again, then if that's the truth, it challenges absolutely everything in our lives. I want to show you something. Let's jump into this and actually uh, take a look at some of, these, uh, some of this. Here's a claim that's been made about Jesus. I just want you to hear. This is not what I believe. This is probably not what you believe. But this is a claim from a guy named Bart Ehrman, a scholar that doesn't believe in Jesus. And I want you to hear what it says. He says, stories based on eyewitness accounts aren't necessarily reliable. And that same is true a hundredfold for accounts that, even if stemming from reports of eyewitnesses, have been in oral circulation long after the fact. Imagine ten, playing telephone over the expanse of the Roman Empire, some 2,000 miles across, with thousands of participants from different backgrounds, in different concerns, in different contexts, all over the course of decades. What he claims is, you cannot trust what it says in the Gospels. He says, because basically, here's what it is. It's like, has anybody ever played that telephone game where you sit all in a circle there and one person whispers to something and the one person... Now, I was a terrible person to play that with because when I was little, on rainy days, our teacher would make us play this. And I would always change it in the middle on purpose. So, I mean, it would come around and it would say, like, the day is rainy today. And and, and I would be something like, um, you know, the teacher's hair looks like a mangy armpit or something like that. I was going to go all the way around that way. And so I'd always mess it up. But let's even assume everybody's really trying and wasn't like me and was just obstinate about it and the idea is look the message changes as it goes around the circle they're saying look the, the, the new testament and the stories in the new testament they're just like that they got changed over and over through time but i want to show you how we know they didn't change over time now in the first place Part of the reason that we aren't able to pass something very well from one person to another and remember it is because we live in a written culture. You, you write things down. All of us do. We write things down if we want to remember something. We aren't people who live in what's called an oral traditioning culture. 
Now, in an oral tradition in cultures such as the Jewish people of the first century, the way they passed a truth from one generation to another was not by writing it down at first, no. The way they passed it on in, at first was they would come up with a way to remember it very, very well, and they would memorize it and pass it from one person to the next person to the next person, and they would memorize it, and that would be passed on, and it still can be done very reliably among oral cultures. I worked at one time among Native American peoples uh, in, in South Dakota, and in working with them, there are stories that they have passed down for two and three hundred years relatively unchanged over two or three hundred years. Why? Because they were the Lakota people of South Dakota were an oral culture which passed things on in in that way. Now the New Testament was written in a context in which that's how people passed on truth from one generation to another. And so they formed these histories and they, they passed them on for the purpose of, of generations being having those memorized. Now, even in this claim here, here's another false claim I want us to look at before we start unpacking this a little bit more. This guy says the New Testament Gospels, 35 to 65 years after Jesus' death, not by people who were eyewitnesses, but by people living later. After the days of Jesus, people started telling stories about him to convert others and says stories were changed with what would strike us today as reckless abandon. They were modified, amplified, embellished, and sometimes they were made up. Now... This is what somebody claims it says about the New Testament. You know what? I don't think it's true. Do you think it's true? But I'll show you why. I don't think it's true. I'll show you why. There is strong evidence that I'm going to show you that an oral tradition was passed on about Jesus generation to generation and didn't change. And it didn't change. They were able to pass that on generation to generation. And so by the time it got around to the Gospels being written, there were a bunch of people who already knew the story. And if they started embellishing it, making it up, somebody's going to say, look, I don't think that's the story I memorized. That's not the story that I learned about Jesus. And I'm going to show you how we know that to be the case. So let's take a look at this. Just get into the, the idea of this. The oral culture of the first century would give things in these short ways that were passed down generation to generation. Here's what a Jewish writer from that time period has to say about this. His name was Philo. He says, here's how we teach. Instruction moves in a leisurely way. The teacher lingers over it, spins it out with repetitions, thus permanently imprinting the thoughts in the hearer's souls. How did they teach things then? They went over it leisurely over and over and over till it got imprinted on the soul and was passed on in that way. That's how they taught. They didn't teach the way, teach the way we do where everybody's sitting down trying to take notes and do all that. It wasn't that. It was going over something over and over in a leisurely way till the person could get that and pass it on to somebody else. And in fact, in your New Testament, you have an oral tradition. Did you know that? There's a text in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's take a look at that text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you've got your Bible with you. This shows every mark of this ancient oral traditioning process. It says there, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, the Aramaic name for Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now I want to point out something right there. There's two technical words that are used when you introduce an oral tradition. And they are these words that are passed on and received. So Paul is saying right here, I passed on to you what I received. In other words, there was an oral tradition I received, and I passed it on to you without changing it. Without changing it. Now, here's something interesting too. Several years have passed between when Paul went to this church and when he wrote this letter. Do you know that? Several years passed. Do you know what that lets us know? That lets us know Paul's not changing the story. Because he says, remember when I was there, I taught this to you, and he repeats exactly what he taught to them, and the people in Corinth are having some problems with Paul, if you remember the story of that. And so if he does anything that steps out of line that says you're changing the story, they're going to call him on it, aren't they? But you know, Paul hasn't changed the story. So he says, I passed on to you what it was that I received. But we can go further than this. There is this and that, and that, and that. Now you brush over that, and I do too, and it may seem, okay, no big deal. But it's kind of an odd way of phrasing things, especially in Greek, the original language behind this. And here's what it tells us. That there is a Hebrew or Aramaic, the language, these languages, Hebrew or Aramaic, background to this. There's a pattern right there that says this has been translated from another language. Because it's just an odd pattern in this. Now one of the things that's really, really important in that, and also Simon Peter's Aramaic name there, says it didn't start in the Greek language. It started in Aramaic or Hebrew, that language of that sort, that background. You know where they speak that language? Well, it's of course around Israel, isn't it? So we can look at this and we can also identify not only that it's an oral tradition, but where it came from. It came from the area around Jerusalem, Judea, those areas there, which, what happened in those areas? Uh, it was Jesus in those areas. So we know where it came from. We know that it came from the place. So it's an oral tradition that's passed down and it came from the place that these events really occurred. That's really important. It didn't come from somewhere else. It came from the place where the events really occurred. And Paul's previous visit was five years earlier. But when had Paul been in Jerusalem? Well, he'd been in Jerusalem all the way back around 35, the year 35. That's not very long from when he was converted and not very long before that, that Jesus was raised from the dead. This isn't 30 years later, 40 years later, 50 years later that they come up with this story. We know from this because the last time Paul's back there, when he would have received this tradition from somebody, would have been back in 30, around 35. It's when he interviewed, it says in the book of Galatians, interviewed Simon Peter. The word there for interview is the Greek word hystereo, from which you get history, is what you get that word from. So in other words, he has heard this story, and by the time he heard it from Simon Peter, it was already a settled tradition passed on from one person to another. So this isn't decades later. This story of Jesus right here was circulating very, very early. The earliest it could have been is about 35. Probably earlier from that because it's already settled by that time. So it's completely false, this idea that the story comes much, much later. Let's go on to some other things in this. 
This early tradition suggests that the accounts of Jesus' life emerged early. In the context of eyewitnesses, remember, because the place has to be around Jerusalem area and remained unchanged as they spread across the Roman Empire. So let's ask the question, dig a little bit deeper into this and say, did the story about Jesus really come from eyewitnesses? Or is it other people just writing fiction later? Or did the story of Jesus really come from eyewitnesses? Here's what somebody says. He says, the the Gospels that came to be included in the New Testament, they're all written anonymously. When Christians recognized the need for apostolic authorities, they attributed the books to apostles and close companions of apostles. Mark, Peter, Luke, Paul. Scholars continue to call these books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a matter of convenience. They have to be called something, and it doesn't make much sense to call them George, Jim, Fred, and Sam. This is the claim that's been made. So in other words, here's what he's saying. He says, you know what? When those Gospels first came out, nobody knew who wrote them. Nobody knew who wrote them. They just kind of circulated around, and nobody knew who wrote them. And after a while, they decided, you know what? We have to make these books seem authoritative. So what we're going to do is we're going to add names to them from people that sound really authoritative. That's the claim that's been made there. Now, I want to suggest to you that every gospel in your New Testament can be traced directly back to an eyewitness. That's what I want to suggest to you. Every one of these can be traced directly back to an eyewitness. I'm going to unpack that for you. So the claim is they're anonymous. That is, uh, and, and the reason he says that is, that there is something that is partly true in this. You see, in the old manuscripts of the New Testament, the oldest ones, the Gospels don't have the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on them. They're not there. Not there. Now, I'm going to grant that they weren't there originally. Now, I'll give you a hint. I think they really were. Because do you know how in the ancient world they cataloged books in libraries? You see that, imagine a library with me in their day. Your library has all these flat shelves, everything like that. Their shelves were crisscrossed so that it had a whole bunch of diamond shapes. You see it with me? Kind of imagine it in your mind right there. And so each scroll would be rolled in and stuck in there, and each scroll would have a tag on it made out of leather that was a little tag that would give the name of that book or of the author. Now, you know what's going to happen over generations is That scroll may survive, but those tags are going to get lost. Now, I think that's what happened to it. But I'll just grant for a moment. I'll say, you know what? Let's just suppose that they circulated around without any names. We'll just grant that. Even though I don't necessarily think it's the case, we'll grant that. So he's saying, you know what? Since we find these without any names, what that means is nobody knew who wrote them, and they just assigned names to these. I think it's false. And I'll show you how we know it's false. I'll show you how we know it's false. Let me just show you a map of the ancient world, and I want to show you something really important here. First off, as a kind of a sidelight, that bottom one right there, you see that little scrap right there? It's a little scrap from John chapter 18. In real life, that scrap is about that big, okay? (laughs) That's all it is. It's about that big. But it's one of the most important scraps of any piece of papyrus, that was the paper they had then, in ever has ever been. Now here's why. It's the earliest little fragment of the New Testament. It's the earliest one. It's somewhere around 100 A.D. is the year for it. Somewhere in 100. This little fragment right here. 
It's somewhere around 100. We know it's 100 A.D. because if you compare the style of writing with some other letters, then it has the same style of writing as others that were written about that same time. That's, that's not that long. After the time of John, most people think the Gospel of John was written about 90 or so. That means this is 10 years after the book was first written. You might be looking at, in this little fragment right there, that little fragment that's in the British Museum in London, you might be looking at there the first copy of John's Gospel right there. A little fragment of that. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. So this whole idea that these come much, much, much later is false because we know that this, this little fragment proves that wrong. But here's what I want to jump into. You see, people in different places, this one area over here in modern Turkey um, right there, it says there, a guy named Papias, he said, Mark, Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately as much as he remembered. And then he says, Matthew, in the Hebrew dialect, placed sayings in orderly arrangement. That's all the way over there. All the way over there in Italy, there's some fragments that say that uh, Mark's gospel is Peter's memoirs. And also says that the third book of the gospel is according to Luke. The fourth one is the one of John. Now, you're thinking, what does this matter, all these different areas? You remember that the people then, they didn't have email. They didn't have telephones, okay? They didn't have any of these things like this. But you know what happens? As soon as they start putting titles on the Gospels, all the Gospels show up with the exact same names attached to them. You know that? So in other words, every copy of Matthew's Gospel... Even if it's in one end of the Roman Empire, it's, that ends up getting the name Matthew put on it when they start putting names on it. And on the other end, they also put... Now, why would they put the name Matthew? How would they know that Matthew wrote that gospel? Why would they both, on each end of the Roman Empire, both put the name Matthew, for example, on Matthew's gospel? Or Mark on Mark's gospel? Or Luke on Luke's gospel? Or John? Why would they know to do that? They had no way of making contact with each other. Why did they do that? You know why they did it? What you're seeing right here are some oral traditions that got passed down. When one church came to another church and said, here's a gospel that is from an eyewitness, and I'm going to pass it on to you, they didn't just hand it to them. They said, there's a story behind this gospel, and here's the story. And so when they passed on Matthew's gospel, do you know what they did? They said, this comes from Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus. When they passed on Mark's gospel, do you know what they told the people? They said, this is the preaching of Peter. That's what it was. It was Peter went around, and Peter, his, his Greek was always pretty rough, okay? So he traveled with a guy named John Mark, and John Mark translated his preaching into Greek. So do you know what the Mark's gospel is? It's the words of Peter. That's whose words it is. It's Simon Peter's words, and just as a kind of a sidelight, do you know the gospel that's roughest on Peter in terms of telling you every dumb thing he did? It's the gospel of Mark. It's the gospel of Mark. So he's telling these stories on himself. He's telling these on himself. So when one church passed to another church and said, look, here is Mark's gospel, this he traveled with Peter, and these are the words of Simon Peter. When they passed on Luke's gospel, they would say, you know what, he wasn't an eyewitness, but he was with Paul, and Paul saw Jesus personally. And we vouch us for this. John traveled with Jesus. John was with Jesus, the beloved disciple. So when they passed on these texts from one church to another, and they made copies of them, do you know what they were saying at the same time? They were saying to the people, you know what? This is where it came from. 
This is where it came from. So, in the early 2nd century, and then throughout the 2nd century, they start putting names on them. So they know, without any doubt, as soon as there's time to put, they know whose name goes on it. They know exactly whose name goes on it. They know Matthew, they may be all the way over in Italy, they may be all the way over in Asia Minor, but they know whose name goes on each gospel. Because the story has been passed on to them. Now here's the idea, and I've kind of already said this, but I want to summarize it in this way. If apostolic names had been added in the early 2nd century to Gospels that were all over the Roman Empire, here's what you'd find. You'd find all different names on these Gospels. You'd find Peter being put on one Gospel. You'd find Nathaniel on another one. You'd find all these different names. You don't find that. Instead, you find that every copy of the Gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew, has Matthew's name on it. And John, and you find the right names on the right Gospels. And just thinking about this, if you're going to make up a name for the gospel, you're not going to choose Matthew. You're going to choose somebody more prominent than that. You might make up John, okay? He was one of the prominent ones. But you're going to have Peter, James, and John are going to be the main ones, okay? You're not going to make up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are not the stars of the story. And so if you're going to make it up, you're not going to do that. What is actually found in the manuscript evidence is every titled manuscript that has a title on it, the same authors are connected to the same Gospels. The literary form of the titles may differ, but the author's name never varies. I'll show you just an actual manuscript I worked, uh, that working with uh, some different uh, the, the scans of these manuscripts. On that top it says, Kata Yoanen, okay? Kata Yoanen. That means according to John. That's what that is. On the bottom right there, the top of it says, Euangelion Katayuanin, which means gospel according to John. So in other words, the form of the title changes. Some say gospel according to, some just say according to. One gospel of Matthew, copy of Matthew says the blessed gospel according to Matthew and all these different names. But you know what? Notice John's on both of them. <laughs> the form of the title changes, but John's name is on Both of them. Both of them. How are these names so consistently connected? Because an oral history circulated with them. When he passed on from one church to another, they said, I know who wrote it. Here's who wrote it. We can connect it back to this person. Because they were very, very adamant in the early church about saying, absolutely, we know this came from an eyewitness. In fact, there's a a little fragment called the, it's called the Muratorian Fragment from the middle of the second century. So 150 to 180, somewhere in that range right there. And in that, there's some people in the church that are saying, there's this book called The Shepherd of Hermas, okay? And you're thinking, I've never heard of Shepherd of Hermas. Well, I'll tell you why you've never heard of Shepherd of Hermas. It was a popular book, though. It was really, in fact, there's more copies in the ancient world of the of Shepherd of Hermas than there are of the Gospel according to Mark, okay? Really popular book. It was the purpose-driven life of the second century, all right? Where it's just like everybody's reading this book, and that's what, that's what it was like. And so some of the people in church were saying, we need to put this book in our New Testament, and you know what? There's this letter that says, here's why we have chosen not to do this. Because it was written after the time of the apostles and eyewitnesses. That's what he says. He says, we can't do this. Uh, it was written after that. In fact, they had tracked back and found out who did write it and found out it was the brother of the leading pastor of the Church of Rome at that time, the church in Rome. And they said, you know what? We know who wrote this, and he's way after the apostles. He was not an eyewitness. We can't use this in this way. That's why you don't know about the Shepherd of Hermas. That's why you've never heard of this book is because they were very adamant about saying, unless we can connect this to an eyewitness, 
we will not include it in the texts that we see as authoritative. Here's some of these oral traditions that are passed on. We have Papias, this guy in the late 1st, early 2nd century recorded them. He says, Mark, Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately as much as he remembered, though not in ordered form, of the Lord's sayings and doings. Matthew in the Hebrew dialect placed sayings in orderly arrangement. That's one of them. Uh, here's another one of these traditions. Um, Matthew composed his gospel while Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and building up the church there. After their deaths, Mark, Peter's follower and interpreter, handed down to us Peter's proclamation in written form. Luke, Paul's companion, wrote in a book the gospel proclaimed by Paul. Lastly, John composed the gospel while living in Ephesus. These are the traditions that are passed down in the early church. Another one, the third book of the gospel is according to Luke. Fourth is the one of John. And here's what I was talking about just a moment ago. Hermas composed the shepherd quite recently in our times in Rome. So while it should be read, it ought not to be read publicly for the people of the church. It is not counted among the apostles for it is after their time. You see that they wanted to make sure it was connected to an apostle. The gospel testimony, and I love this statement here, has apostles for its authors. There are some that, though not apostles, are apostolic. They do not stand alone. They appear with and after the apostles. So John and Matthew of the apostles first instill faith into us, while apostolic writers Luke and Mark renew it afterwards. Never mind that there occurs some variation in the arrangement of their narratives, as long as there is agreement in the essential matters of the faith. Now, here's the points I want to make. We've seen that it was formulated soon after Jesus' death, and it circulated reliably. Did you remember that one? The oral tradition passed on. We saw that, how that's true. It was connected to eyewitnesses, and here's the last one I want us to see. It was reported in independent accounts that agree in the details. Now, what I mean by agreeing in the details is this. You imagine that one of us is, is up in, in court for something, okay? Just imagine, I'm not wanting to be there either, but I'm just saying, let's just imagine I am, I'm up there and I'm standing there and I'm accused of something or that I'm being a witness on the witness stand. Let's imagine I am. Now, in that instance, if I hear somebody say, one witness say, a certain detail, and then a few minutes later, somebody who wasn't even in the room comes back and when they describe the event, they... They've got that same detail. And then another person comes back, and they have that same detail. Do you know what I'm going to begin thinking? Either these people got all together and got their story straight, or it really happened that way. Now, so if the people are independent, that is, if the stories emerged at different times and places, but still agree in these details, that's a way of saying this must really have happened. I want to show you that in just a moment. I want you to look at just to do with the resurrection of Jesus. This is pretty amazing when you lay it out this way. We already looked at 1 Corinthians 15. That emerged as an oral history in the early 30s, was written around the year 55, and it has these facts. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was raised on the third day, and many people saw him. Okay? That's Paul writing. He's writing all the way over in the mid part of the Roman Empire, and he writes this. Remember those three details. I just want to say that if those three details, if nothing else is true but those three details, there's every reason to trust Jesus. <laughs> you see that? Even if nothing else is true. Now, do I believe there's so much more true? Of course I do. But even if nothing is true but those three things, there's every reason to trust in Jesus. Mark 16, that little early part of, of that, that we read earlier, that's adapted in Matthew and Luke, written between 65 and 69, based on a much earlier tradition, most likely. 
Look at what you got there. Crucifixion, resurrection on the third day, Mary Magdalene as a first witness. John chapter 20, which seems to be written separately from these others. It doesn't, it's written very different. If you read the Gospels, you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're really similar, but John is a little bit different from the others, don't you? You notice that when you're reading the Gospels, because it seems to be written separately where he's not aware of these other Gospels, uh, at least in the form we have them. Look at that. Crucifixion, resurrection on the third day, and Mary Magdalene is the first witness. Now, John's writing all the way over in Ephesus. Mark's writing all the way over in Rome. Remember earlier, they don't have email. They don't have telephone. So so they're somehow getting the same story with a crucial detail that Mary Magdalene is the first witness. Now, think if you're making the story up, you're not going to choose Mary Magdalene as witness number one. Do you realize that? You're not going to choose her because for no other reason that there's the fact that a woman's testimony was not accepted in court in that. And there were some questions about Mary's character, too, weren't there? Now, we don't know how much of those emerged when, but we know there were questions. We know that much about her character. You're not going to choose her as witness number one unless maybe she was witness number one. <laughs> but you're not going to do that if you're making the story up. And we got two different things where they had different places, and they have that. Now, not only that, I'm going to skip that, that Mark 16 right there, the third one. I want to go down to the bottom one. Now, there's a text, I don't think it ought to be in the New Testament. I'm not saying it should be, because you can't trace it back to an apostle. But it's really an important text. And it's an important text because it gives a version of the last days of Jesus' life that doesn't depend on any of the Gospels you have in your New Testament. It's separate from them. Now, it comes much later, but somehow this story circulated and, and it gets into this document as well. It doesn't really written by Peter. It's called Gospel Peter. It really isn't written by him. And it has crucifixion, resurrection on the third day, and Mary Magdalene as witness number one. Now, do you see that? Now, what I want to show you is that if anything else in all of history has these type of witnesses, people say, it happened where you've got the same thing reported multiple times and you have some sort of little odd detail that everybody agrees on. If that happened with anything else in history, everybody's going to say, well, there's no doubt. It had to happen. And these you've got crucifixion, resurrection on the third day, and in multiple ones of these, a detail that nobody would make up. Nobody's going to make up the detail about Mary Magdalene unless that detail is based on truth. And what I want to submit to you from that is that there is every reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Not just because of how we feel, not just because we experience it, but because by when we judge it by the same standards of history we would judge anything else by, it's absolutely clear that Jesus Christ, his resurrection, is shown to us in a way that is, fits every standard of history. Unless, of course, you just don't want to believe it. <laughs> That's the only one that, that it doesn't, may not fit. And here's what I want to suggest. If the most consistent historical evidence fits with a miraculous event, there's every reason to believe it occurred, especially if those sources verify it independently. And that's what we have in the resurrection of Jesus. 
I want you to see something else before we pull, start pulling this to a close. That is that this story of Jesus, we've heard it so often, that it's hard for us to recognize how weird and radical it was when it was first spoken. Man, we don't hear that. I want to tell you about what crucifixion was really perceived as, and I'm not trying to be vulgar in this, but I want you to understand it, and I want you to see it. This is a Roman philosopher, Seneca, saying, here's what happens in crucifixion. I see the stakes there, not of one kind, but of many. Some victims are placed head down. Some have spikes driven through their genitals. Others have their arms stretched out on the gibbet. This is what he sees when he looks out and sees people being crucified. Did you know that the word crucify was a bad word in the ancient world? It was a cuss word. There's a document in which there is a prostitute, that there's somebody who has wronged her. And do you know what she says as he walks out the door? She says, go crucify yourself. That's what she says to him. That gives you the idea of the vulgarity of the word. It's a bad word in their world. It's something you don't say in polite company because crucifixion was so nasty, disgusting, vulgar. You aren't going to make this story up. You just aren't going to make it up. To have a God who goes to the cross when a cross is viewed in that way? There's no way you're going to fabricate this and make this up and say, our God went to the cross. You don't want to admit this if it's true. Unless, of course, it is true. And then you admit it not because it comes naturally or flows well, but because it really happened. Let me show you a piece of graffiti. Yeah, they had graffiti in the ancient world, too. This is graffiti from the ancient world. This is from the second century. It says on there, Alexamenos Sebete Thaon, which means uh, Alexamenos worships God, worships his God. Um, there's a, it's even, oddly enough, the, the funny thing is, it should say Sebetai, uh, but even misspellings occur in graffiti in the ancient world. So it's misspelled even. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. It's misspelled even. But it's in the slaves' quarters of the Palatine in, in Rome. And somebody is saying of about a, a man or a young man, perhaps a boy named Alexamenos, they're making fun of him. He's evidently a Christian. And they've sketched some graffiti to make fun of Alexamenos. It says Alexamenos worships his God. And it says your God, if your God went to the cross, he's nothing more than... Making fun of a kid because of his belief in Jesus Christ. Making fun of him because of that. Think about that for a moment. That that's what's going on in the ancient world. Once again, unless it really happens, you're not going to make this up. You're not going to make this up unless it really happens. So what I want to suggest to us is this. That there is no reason to believe that Jesus' story of the story of his death and resurrection that you have in your New Testament was testified to by eyewitnesses that it circulated reliably. People weren't making this up. house, it's a really mean rule. You don't leave TV, but it's based on books, and that's what 
Paul Jones, another round in the fall.